Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week we're continuing our watch through of The Magicians with Season 2, Episode 8, Word as Bond. Britt, could you start us off with a recap, please? Oh my god, so many things happened in this episode, so I will try <laughs> to go quickly. We find out that Julia has lost her shade, and with it gone, is in high spirits. She and Katie come up with a new plan to banish Reynard, find Dana's demigod son. As promised, during the heist, Alice and Quentin seal a word, a word is bond, so that Alice can use his body for half an hour each night, which she uses to research Niffins. In Fillory, Elliot is convalescing as they try to return his consciousness to his body. So Quentin decides to help Julia, who is going to find the hospital where Dana's son was likely surrendered. When Reynard shows up, they luckily have the button and escape to Fillory, where Julia and Margot brainstorm how to deal with a sentient forest that is integral to the new war. They try talking with a dryad in the forest, but he's a sexist jerk. So Julia later returns and gets the Lorian wand sorcerer to enchant a stone that will make her invisible to gods. She then tricks the dryad into taking a box into the forest that soon explodes in flames. Margot has Julia sent to the dungeons in response, just in time for Elliot to wake up. Meanwhile, Penny continues running errands for Mayakovsky, which takes him to the Library of the Netherlands, where Zelda gives him an alternative to his magic problem. Let the Order help in return for a million-year contract. Penny refuses at first, but when they can't find the identity of the demigod's son, he signs on with the library and gets the son's name. Back in Niffin territory, Quentin wakes up to find that Alice tortured an angler beast that looked like a little girl to get information. The next time he wakes up, he's in Dublin, and she tricks him into summoning Friar Joseph, a Niffin who found a way to avoid getting boxed. Friar Joseph tells her to free herself from Quentin, and then he may help her. When Quentin returns to Breakbills, Penny looks into Quentin's mind and discovers Niffin Alice is there. So yeah, a, a, a lot happens. Yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> so, a brief recap. <laughs> a very brief of, episode. Yeah, exactly. Nothing much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's head into our first section. What were your magic moments for this episode? Yeah, one of them is that I think it's still really sweet that Margot is the only person who connects with Quentin on the filler books outside of Julia. Mm-hmm. She's like, we can enchant this mirror so it can be just like in the books and stuff. And yeah, it's just a sweet reminder that, yeah, they both like this fandom and, and these books meant a lot to them. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a way they connect that we don't get to see every episode, but yeah. when it pops up, it's nice. It's something that bonds them together Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in this Word is Bond episode. <laughs> but also, I think it's one of the only things that bonds them totally. as characters. Uh, one thing they connect on, which is, yeah, yeah some, sometimes how it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, it's just great that Katie tells Quentin, like it or not, we're the closest thing you have to friends, and then, and then punches him. Yeah, exactly. This is why Katie and Penny get along mm-hmm. so well. Exactly. <laughs> They're going to help Quentin, but they're not going to shy away from hurting him, too. (laughs) They're just going to do it the most efficient way possible. 
They're not going to bother you to wait for Quentin to fall asleep or, you know, do anything. They're just like, this just needs to be settled. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that I think is really good that they have in this episode is Katie drinking too much. Mm. The fact that she says she's getting drunk so that she won't go out and find meth, basically. And that she's trying not to use until they're able to banish Reynard. And so it's just like, yeah, the addiction that she developed, you know, in the aftermath of all of the violence with Reynard is still affecting her today. It's it's not just like, oh, yeah, that was in one episode and now she has this potion and everything's fixed. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's it's not that easy or simple. And so... Yeah, it's it's really, I think, meaningful to see her struggling so much, but just trying to help Julia and trying to help banish this person who killed all her friends and almost her and raped her other friend. And, you know, so, yeah, it's it's so clear that she's going through a lot and she's just trying to manage any way she can. Yeah. But, yeah, what about you? What were your magic moments? Oh, so many. One is just the existence of the angler beast. Like, <laughs> the idea that, you know, it's like an angler fish with the little light that mm-hmm. draws things in. This has a little girl that draws people in to get killed. Especially it's, other kids. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think I'm safe. <laughs> it's a, a really clever idea for a monster. And it's a evocative way of using a lower budget for graphics and things like that. You don't have to show a huge monster. You can just get a little girl actor and, you know, but it still, (laughs) yeah, evokes so much more and so much danger there. That is, uh, it's just, yeah, it's really well done. (laughs) It just makes me think of, um, in the good place when Michael is talking about like the different stages of a demon. Mm. (laughs) One of them is spooky little girl. Yes, exactly. And then the one after that is adolescent boy. (laughs) (laughs) Spooky little girl. (laughs) That's a great creepy little trap. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) I also liked the magic design of the crystals above. Elliot, oh yeah, and the, the spell that kind of helps him out, and just like the little points of sunlight kind of coming through into the room, and mm-hmm. how I'm guessing that interacts with it in some way. But yeah, it was just was a really cool, like healing bed to see. And then just you know another production thing, the way that the the show changes audio cues, lighting, etc. to to make. Julia now that she doesn't have her shade more sinister, mm-hmm. um, and kind of increase the questions that you might have about how she might be different and and Mm -hmm. kind of increase that tension are just yeah just well done totally yeah it's great how she at first doesn't seem that different but they'll keep the shot on her just a little bit longer so her stare is just a little too intense and you're like it feels like something's off exactly and and i think that her acting does a really good job with that as well you know she does a a great job of having a smile that looks sincere, but <laughs> also shouldn't be sincere because she lost her shade, you know, similar to how Martin did, where it's like, where is this joy coming from? Is it a good joy in the way that we think about it? Totally. Now, now I'm just referencing too many outside fandoms, but whatever. In 
Lord of the Rings, when they were talking about Strider, they're like, you know, she'll be mm. trust him. And he's like, I think a servant of the enemy would look fairer and feel fouler. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's where her smile is. It looks nice. Like, she looks like she's being kind and warm, but like, there's something that, that you feel foul. that, yeah. yeah, that feels <laughs> wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And then my last one is just like, some scenes transition just on Quentin's heavy size. Like, it <laughs> gives him an extra second just for him to be like, <sighs> before the next scene starts. <laughs> I and didn't it's just... even notice that. That's great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it is just, you know, Quentin, we, we obviously criticize Quentin a lot, mm-hmm. but he's also just going through so much. And <laughs> it just keeps coming and, and he's understandably overwhelmed and and yeah they just give just those small moments of it which are fun (laughs) but let's head into our second segment on setting in society what did you bring i mean we have to at least mention niff and alice's comment that the angler beast wasn't cooperating so i had to use enhanced interrogation techniques yes i mean Yes, this is, if you're not aware, this is what the United States calls torture that it legally uses because it is, uh, it has been made permissible. Through the use of that euphemism. Exactly. Like, they utilize that euphemism on documents as a way of saying we're not torturing to Mm -hmm. give that kind of defense. It's just enhanced interrogation. Exactly. It's completely unacceptable. It still happens. And I am loath to say that some of my tax dollars goes Mm -hmm. to fund these things. Like, it is absolutely awful. And seeing her flippantly use that, it's very interesting because it brings something to, sure, she's a niffin and she's doing this and this is bad and sinister Mm -hmm. and all those things. But also it's like, well, humans do this too. Humans with their shades. And so... It's like, oh, I'm using your people's language. <laughs> That's what it sort of feels like. Yeah. Uh, so how can you protest at this? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's interesting, too, because much of this episode, we see Alice intentionally think about how she's going to phrase things to Quentin, mm-hmm. some, you know, in order to manipulate him. Yeah. And a euphemism is all about manipulation using words. So it's kind of emblematic of what she's doing to him throughout the episode just in this kind of flippant way absolutely but i think it also drives home another point which is she said in the word is bond i'm not allowed to hurt anybody Mm -hmm. and so in the language that quentin wrote down or whatever he didn't include that to be non-human species right and so it's like this angry beast is not a person. They're obviously not human, but they're not a person. So it doesn't matter if I kill them, torture them, whatever, it's fine. And, you know, that, that is something that happens with torture. It's a dehumanizing the victim so that they're less than you. They deserve this. Whatever mental hoops people have to jump through to see this other person as enemy and therefore because they're enemy, they can be treated abhorrently does connect to something in our world. Absolutely. Yeah. Because many of those, you know, particularly those held at Guantanamo Bay, but many others as well who are held as enemy combatants 
never go to trial because, again, of legal loopholes that say, okay, well, they're not a war captive. They are instead an enemy combatant. And so, you know, they're on a POW. So that means that we don't have to take them through certain trials before we interrogate them, quote unquote. And if we're calling tortured now enhanced interrogation, it means that people can be tortured without trial. They are just deemed as evil, criminal, and worthy of torture, regardless of any kind of actual evidence or proof of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's terrible. I'm very glad that there are some human rights lawyers and things, people out there who are trying to fight against this because it is a enormous problem. And as we've talked about in our podcast and on other series before, the United States doesn't want to be held accountable for these things. That's why they don't sign on to certain United Nations resolutions and, you know, they, they don't, they'll veto being held accountable. Absolutely. Because they want to continue to torture people under the guise of it makes Americans safer, which mm -hmm. I would argue it does not. But, you know, <laughs> I would argue it uh, fuels some of the problem. But, uh, you know, people don't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> but another thing that I really want to talk about is the contract that Penny signs because it is for unlimited manual and magical labor during and after your death for one million years. Mm -hmm. And even though the terms are laid out clearly, it's still out of desperation that he agrees to this. Mm -hmm. It's because he doesn't know of any other options for him to be able to get his magic back. Even the university he goes to won't help him. And they just sent him to Mayakovsky, and Mayakovsky is completely unclear. He's like, sure, I can help you. But he doesn't give any evidence of that. He doesn't give any time frame. Like, he doesn't even know if he's just lying to him so that he can make use of his traveling since Mayakovsky can't leave Brickville South. Yeah. And so it's out of his desperation that he agrees to this contract. And so that was bringing up in my mind parallels to modern day slavery mm -hmm. and human trafficking, because oftentimes with human trafficking, it isn't clear the cost or these debts that will accrue and just completely exploitative practices that it's not made clear before people decide to travel to another country or, or whatever the situation is. Or send their child to another country. Exactly. Yeah. But there are times when things are made clear and it's just because somebody is so desperate mm -hmm. that they, this is the only option for them. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that it's not modern day slavery. John Oliver actually has a really good segment of a very recent case with the FIFA World Cup in Qatar mm -hmm. and the human trafficking that happened with South Asians to build these stadiums and all of this stuff, like absolutely horrendous people working in 120 degree heat, no water, all of these people staying in very tight quarters, like just absolutely horrendous stuff um, and being paid nothing basically and so uh yeah I would, I would definitely recommend that yeah such an important topic and i think this is something that we'll probably be revisiting a lot as we see penny come to terms with this contract and its terms yeah but absolutely yeah yeah i, I was thinking a similar vein of of how 
historically and in modern day, people will indenture themselves mm -hmm. because, yeah, they're desperate because this is the only way they're going to access, you know, what they need. How those contracts are always created in a way that most takes advantage of the laborer. Mm -hmm. um, or makes it so difficult to get out of it so that basically you can't, or you literally can't because precisely. you're you know, locked in buildings. But uh, yeah, I think it's a particularly poignant element here because Penny is ethnically South Asian and South Asians have been suffering under sweatshops, human trafficking, um, even after transatlantic slave trade was dismantled, abolished. There's actually a lot of plantations that just changed and imported South Asian people to work on them in similar conditions. And so, uh, yeah, there's there's a long history of it. So I'll be, yeah, keeping an eye out as we continue on. Mm -hmm. Not that I think that necessarily this was intentional, but, you know, connections that I make. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, what about you? What are your setting in society points? Yeah, well, just very quickly at first, uh, the fact that all these god-killing spells exist because mm -hmm. Zeus and his friends were just going around raping and murdering people. Um, so true. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's it's a darkly comedic line, mm -hmm. but it also makes sense considering what we've found out so far about this world and the fact that gods exist. And within that cosmology, knowing the myths of characters like Zeus, mm -hmm. you know, that is clearly how that world would have suffered and would have reacted to that suffering. So yeah, just, just a small, but I think clever bit of world building again. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I never got into Greek myths because I was just like, I hate so many of these gods so much. I just <laughs> like, I can't abide that they have all of this power and are just messing with everyone who doesn't have power. Exactly. <laughs> really bothered me. So yeah. Uh, bothered these magicians too. And it, but it's also <laughs> sad that it's like, yeah, they, they tried all of these different spells over many communities over time, but None of them work. Not that, you know, killing is a silly answer, but the banishment? I love that. That is a great option, as long as they don't just go to another world and do it. But it seems like they can't, mm -hmm. because Reynard does not follow Julia and Quentin to Fillory, and I wonder if it's just, like, gods of specific worlds stay within those worlds unless they're banished and maybe they can't or else they get in fights with other gods that are like hey this is my world what are you doing here yeah i think that there's probably some kinds of either territorial or magical limits to where they can go um although if reynard was going up against ember i'm like i think ember would just die <laughs> <laughs> Yes, probably. Normally, I would I would give a ram the upper hand to a fox, but not these ones. <laughs> yeah. I also wanted to talk about the conversation with the dryad and mm. the negotiation that goes on there, which there's a lot to talk about. One of the things I want to mention here is how he mentions that the rulers of Fillory have ha have a long history of arboreal disrespect, <laughs> which is a great line. <laughs> I love that phrase, arboreal disrespect, because we definitely have that exactly. as humans on this planet. Yeah. 
Yeah, it made me think of, I think I've, I've talked about this book in the past on the, the podcast, but there's a book called A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things by Jason Moore and Raj Patel. And in it, the, the authors argue that capitalism essentially ruins the world, ruined the world <laughs> by intentionally cheapening things like labor and energy and food and other kinds of things. But the first chapter is on cheap nature because of how capitalism kind of took nature from being a communal and a communally owned resource in much of Europe to one that is owned by the wealthy. You know, you own land and the resources on that land and you can do whatever you want with them. And typically what you're going to do is you're going to make it so you can make the most money out of those materials or use those materials to make money out of other things. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the privatization and cheapening of nature is a core component of how we got capitalism as a massively environmentally destructive system. Mm -hmm. um, and one in which the majority of the world's mindset, or at least corporations' mindsets, is to exploit resources for as much as you possibly can for short-term profit regardless of long-term costs either to your profit or to the environment. Yeah, it's like nature isn't valuable as an ecosystem. It's only valuable in how it can make you more money. Mm -hmm. And if you destroy that ecosystem to get more money, well, it doesn't really matter because you have enough money to be kept in nice air-conditioned place with food and clothes and, you know, way more excess than anyone needs or should ever have. Mm -hmm. But those who have to live around or in the desolation of different ecosystems um, suffer for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that the show having a sentient forest is a really powerful message of having of giving a voice to those resources in a way that in our world, we they don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they're poor screams as mm -hmm. they're being burned alive. Well, and that's the thing is then they're destroyed by Julia in a way that almost makes it seem like she killed all of them. Like those are the last ones that existed. Well, they said that they're the last of its kind. Exactly. So yeah, this so is a genocide. Exactly. Well, I mean, it would be a genocide regardless if they were the last of their kind, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the same way that whether through capitalist exploitation or through imperialism, colonialism, other kinds of prejudice, genocide has attempted to exploit or kill off people to see people as objects. A genocide of trees, even though they're sentient, is, I think, yeah, a powerful metaphor for the way that we see nature, the way that we see people, and how people can be objectified into a kind of resource and exploited and commodified in that way, in the same way that we do to nature. And in this world, we see how these sentient trees, a kind of mixture of personhood and natural resource, are destroyed when they're in the way, um, mm -hmm. based off of a whim. And yeah, it's just, a, I think, a, a really, really important moment for Julia's character that, that solidifies, oh no, she's not the same person anymore. <laughs> 
Definitely. I'm like, someone needs to have Julia sign a word as Bond, yeah. but not have Quentin write it. Let's <laughs> have Elliot write it. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> My last thing is just probably not going to surprise any longtime listener that when I saw that viewfinder that lets you look into the past... Mm-hmm. Oh, my mind went uh, very sparkly. Uh, <laughs> it's such a cool idea. I mean, for one, calling it phosphomancy, making it so that that type of magic can make you look into the past, like light can be bent to be seen into the past is so cool. So cool, yeah. I mean, I just want one to look at everything. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, again, how would historians of the world utilize this to Mm -hmm. understand the past and to see what happened? And it's just such a powerful tool that they got access to pretty easily Mm -hmm. and could mean so much to the world. And I think it, it, you know, obviously I'm a historian. This is something that I'm passionate about and I find really, really important, but it's just, I think another example of how magic can do such immensely important things. Things that are literally life-changing that just one small device could have a massive impact on the way I see the world, the way I I live my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that would be the case for anyone in any occupation, that there are these relatively small magical items or spells that encompass just a fraction of what these magicians' characters have access to, but would ultimately transform life mm-hmm. in such profound ways. Uh, and so, yeah, I just, I think it's, it's a, a great moment just of cool magic, but also highlights how fantastic and how awesome, like in their original definitions, this world is. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this would be <laughs> what the best public history resource you could have in the world absolutely and how it would transform classrooms Mm -hmm. if students could actually look into the past and see what was happening at certain places like yeah it just would be so fascinating but it also would be really interesting because if you grew up with this then you would know that others will be able to look back at Mm. what you're doing and how would that yeah potentially alter behavior mm-hmm. <laughs> how could it even i mean long-time listeners will know we are pretty critical of the police <laughs> <laughs> so how would this tool work in terms of investigating crimes or you know yeah. alibis you know all sorts of stuff That's like a great yeah, point it would it, it would be very interesting but it in and of itself is a pretty unbiased tool mm-hmm. yet <laughs> who is allowed in certain spaces or the sociological reasons that make certain groups more vulnerable or desperate or you know different things wouldn't be taken into account unless people make it be taken into account right. uh, through a tool like that so yeah it could also be a potentially dangerous thing mm-hmm. yeah it has to be used responsibly mm-hmm since one of humans been responsible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hopefully scholars are, but, uh, you that's know. A, that's a hope, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, after that jumbo-sized setting in society section, uh, let's head into our themes and schemes. What did you bring? So I was thinking about the hero complex mm. idea and 
how in this episode, uh, towards the end, when the magicians explained that Elliot would have to choose to cross back over to his body, Margot tells him, I know you have a constant low-key death wish, but you can't leave Mm -hmm. because basically Fillory wants him and not her. And so she needs him and Fillory needs him. And so, yeah, it was it was kind of making me think about how there are differences between, I think, trying to be responsible between helping those you love and between trying to be a savior. And I think here with Elliot, yeah, having that low-key death wish, he chooses to come back, not because he's like, I need to be the savior of the world, as much as he's trying to be responsible in regards to the people of Fillory and also to Margot, the person he chose as his high queen, Mm -hmm. and that she is shouldering this all on her own right now and he doesn't want to abandon her and so i think he came back out of responsibility and out of love for her Mm. rather than just because it's like oh i am the hero of the story (laughs) you know and then i think you also have in this episode katie accusing penny of trying to save her Mm. and I don't think that Penny actually has a savior complex at all. I don't think that that's a part of his way of thinking about things. I think he just wants to help those he cares about and do what he feels like needs to be done. Like, it has to be done, so I'm going to do it because I'm the person who can do it here now. And like I was talking about before, acts of service. Like, he is doing acts of service for people even to the point of sacrificing himself for those he cares about. So I don't think it was as much as like, oh, I am the man, and so I have to save this woman that I love, versus Katie is struggling, and I want to help. Mm -hmm. And this is important with Reynard being the awful god that he is, and so... I have the ability to get this information, so I'm going to get this information, and I'll sacrifice myself for it if I need to. So I think for him, he does it oftentimes more for people he cares about, like jumping in front to save Quentin from this knife. Like, Mm -hmm. he wouldn't say he cares about Quentin, but he's saved Quentin so many times. Yeah. That's the other thing is, you know, we saw him talking to Elliot about, like, are you okay? Like, we if there's something that we can do to help each other, like, we don't have to just commiserate and ask mm-hmm. each other if you're okay. But if he sees something to be done, he's going to say something about it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when he notices that Quentin's wards are down and then up and, you know, all these other kinds of things. Like, he sees these differences in Quentin and he calls him out on it. And it's like, he's not just going to ignore something that's Mm -hmm. in front of him that he sees as a problem. Even for someone, yeah, like Quentin, who he's not in love with, like he is with Katie. Mm -hmm. I mean, some shippers would... Yeah. (laughs) ...would disagree, but yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but I think that then it comes to Quentin, who... I think has this intertwined. I don't think that he has the responsibility part that Elliot does. Mm -hmm. 
but I think that he has intertwined the desires of helping people and places that he cares about and also wanting to be the hero of the story. Yeah. Because he says, I can't help Elliot. I can't help Julia. I'm just trying to do something for the one person who deserves it the most, he tells Nip and Alice. But she says to him, you're a failure, so stop using me to try to fix that. Mm-hmm. Which is obviously a very harsh thing to say, but I think that there is some truth in it. Not that he's a failure, but that he is trying to constantly use saving people or places as a way to fix the things that he feels is wrong in himself. That he has chronic depression that he doesn't really want to be alive. And so if he can be needed, if only he can save the world, Mm -hmm. you know, like it gives his life meaning that he doesn't find when he's not trying to do those things. And so I think for him, yeah, it is intertwined. I think he does actually want to help Alice, but that's not all that's operating for, for Quentin. Absolutely. And I think that's the other part of the savior complex is it's not just about saving it's not just about that verb but it's also about being a savior it's about Mm -hmm. you know a self-identity and i think for quentin who has said that he hates himself part of it is also if i save people i can be a savior i can be someone who is a hero who is a main character who you know who has these kinds of elements which again as we've talked about is not realistic but this kind of romantic view can wipe away the self-hatred, wipe away the ways that he sees himself as a failure. And yeah, so he can self-identify in a way that is positive as a way to try to cope with his depression. Mm. Not that I speak from experience. (laughs) Not at all. No. But yeah, it's that these actions say something about me, Mm -hmm. which I'm not just saying that that it's not true. You know, the actions that we do, that they are us being ourselves in action but if one of your primary motivations is for it to say something about you Mm -hmm. then that's different yeah yeah because i don't think that penny is there being like because he wasn't there for that final showdown with martin because Mm -hmm. his magic was taking him everywhere i don't think penny sees himself as a failure Mm -hmm. he's just like you know sad that Alice died because of it, and he couldn't help, but he's on to the next problem in his life that he's trying to solve, and, like, he's just exasperated, I don't have magic, I need to get this, you know, but it's not, like, it wasn't tied up in his identity to be there, that he needed to be there to do something with the beast that, you know, he needed to take him down or or whatnot, or protect the person that did take him down, you know, he, he doesn't have that same sort of... Complex. Yeah. 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 And then the other theme and scheme I was thinking about is what it means to be a person without a shade versus Mm -hmm. a niffin. Because I think there's kind of an interesting juxtaposition, which then the more we look at Julia without her shade, the more light can be shed on Martin, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the initial introduction to Niffin Alice and no shade Julia are very different from each other because Julia 
comes down the stairs humming a tune happy and like yes there were those stairs that were a little too long there was something that you could sense was not quite right Mm -hmm. but it's still very different than when alice reappears as a different she is shown to be entirely other Mm -hmm. she is not anything like alice she has a completely different personality. She has no connections to anyone. She was about to turn and kill the people she was just fighting with. She called, you know, her ex-boyfriend, other people who maybe she wouldn't call her friends, but, you know, uh, acquaintances, her team. Compatriots. (laughs) And that's just all gone. She kills Martin for the fun of it. Yeah. And I think in this episode, we see Julia still has a connection to her old life in a way that Alice doesn't. Mm. Because the first thing she does the morning after her shade was removed is thank Katie. Mm-hmm. And she's still on the mission to get rid of Reynard. She's not like, who cares if that's happening to other people? As long as he can't get me, that's fine. You know, she's still on mission to banish him mm-hmm. or or kill him and even when her interactions are maybe less sensitive uh like when quentin says oh i don't think it's a good idea for us to go out to the hospital and she's just like no offense q i didn't actually ask for your opinion thanks though you know and so she still has like some courtesy she still doesn't want to offend quentin mm-hmm. even if she doesn't value his input here. Yeah, but she's not cruel or uncaring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, she she does tell the sorcerer that her loyalty will always lie with herself. Mm-hmm. And which, you know, I think that that's true, and I think that that was true of Martin without his shade. But she still wants to do things for others. For example, she tells Margot, I got what I wanted from the sorcerer, but she destroyed the trees for Margot. Mm. You know, and I think that that's an interesting continuation of the interactions that Margot and Julia have had that have been hostile. It's like she still has the memory of that. She still has the connection to that. And so she's doing something for Margot that she doesn't need to do. Uh, And that she didn't even really want to do. She was just like, I already got what I wanted. Like, she could have just left or, you know, whatnot. But it it wasn't necessarily uh, the thing that Margot would have asked her to do or wanted her to do. But she still was doing something for other people. Yeah. Or maybe, in, in her mind, for Fillory. As wrong as it was. Yeah, just just to make sure everyone knows, this podcast is against genocide. <laughs> But I think Nif and Alice is very different than that. She is completely consumed by her own desires and views everyone else as a tool to use along the way of getting what she wants. Mm -hmm. Uh, She'll stand there and ask Friar Joseph to shut Quentin up as he's strangling him. And then she's just like, oh, no, you have to stop now because if he passes out, I won't be able to talk to you. Like She has no care or consideration for Quentin. No sense of anything except frustration, annoyance, and 
almost disgust for mm-hmm. Quentin. And anyone else, she doesn't care. Penny goes into the mine, she'll strangle him. You know, she like, if it doesn't directly coincide with the actions and the path that she wants to take, it doesn't matter. No one matters. And Quentin only matters because she's stuck in him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's very different from Julia and Martin because Martin wanted to help Julia and he wanted to work together. And I don't think that Alice wants to help anyone or work with anyone. She just wants to get information, knowledge from Friar Joseph so that she can do whatever she wants. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, those were the couple things that I was thinking about this episode. But what about you? That's really interesting because I also was juxtaposing Alice and Julia. Oh, okay, cool. Because for me, what I saw as kind of a, a major theme of both their stories in this episode is the idea of freedom or liberation. Mm. Where Julia starts the episode describing that she feels like a million pound weight is off her chest mm-hmm. because she's lost her shade. And I think part of that is also that the pregnancy's gone. Mm-hmm. But from the way that she and earlier Martin kind of have this devil may care attitude of, yeah, being jaunty, being mm-hmm. upbeat, being polite, but also unconcerned, mm-hmm. you know, they are carefree in a way. And so she does have this kind of, yeah, liberation from the negative feelings, both because some of the cause has been removed, but Reynard's still after her. And so I think it's much more than that. It's not just that she is no longer pregnant. It's also that the shade was its own kind of weight on her. Mm-hmm. And her going off without, you know, outside of the wards is in a way her kind of being too carefree. She is being too free with her choices and herself. And, you know, yeah, she's not asking permission, which is great, has that agency and she's exerting it. But she's also doing something that's not a smart move. And if Quentin wasn't there with the button, who knows what would have happened? Because she's still not powerful enough to fight Reynard. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I think that her kind of exploring that freedom and then later committing genocide, you know, showing a kind of freedom from morality or moral judgment um, is its own kind of freedom. And then we see Nif and Alice as desiring the freedom out of Quentin's body, mm-hmm. desiring the freedom to do whatever she wants to, yeah, kill who she wants or to go where she wants. But to, you know, she is literally trapped inside this body. Do all of the magic she never was able to do as a human. Exactly. Yeah. She, she wants to be able to not hold back and... There's so much holding her back at this point that for her, yeah, the only freedom is to escape that no matter the cost. And we see her getting the ability to take over Quentin's body for some time, but even that is shackled by this agreement they've made. So she can only do certain things. And we see her being frustrated that she doesn't have enough time, frustrated that she can't do certain things that that she has to trick Quentin into doing. She says that she will literally do anything to have Friar Joseph show her the universe, show her all the things that they could learn and do and explore. But mainly show her how to not get boxed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, seeing the two of them both 
being characters who we were introduced to as protagonists, as, as different kinds of characters who have been altered in a way, but who are experiencing or desiring a kind of freedom or a kind of liberation is uh, is just an interesting dichotomy that we see between the two as Julia comes to terms with this new liberation and lives a life that is free in a new way while Alice seeks that out. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting, too, to think about Penny in that mix as mm. well, because what Mayakovsky had said to him the first time they ever met was, you're a traveler, like, you are free. Yeah. Freer than almost anyone else, because he could go anywhere. And... Then he signs that away. Yeah. Yeah. And so now he... Well, as we will see, he is not Mm -hmm. free. I mean, there's a way of saying that he wasn't free prior, because all he was doing was trying to get his magic back and if you don't have magic and you can't get away from all of the psychic noise mm-hmm. of being around people who aren't magicians and haven't put their mental wards up you know how free is that yeah but well yeah, and i think that brings up a really important point which is that freedom and liberation in some ways are about perspective mm-hmm. because all of these characters have more freedom than most of the people in the world because they have access to magic. Totally. And that liberates them from need and want in many ways that other people don't have access to. In the same way that other kinds of privilege in our society are liberatory. Yeah. But within their perspective, yeah, there are still limitations. And yeah, Penny's a really, really fascinating example of that. Mm-hmm. So why don't we head into our From Another Point of View section? Let's do it. Well, I chose Penny. I imagined you would. (laughs) (laughs) One of us was going to. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for him, I was thinking about his compassion a lot because he notices something is wrong with Quentin. Yeah. And he's worried. And you don't get worried about someone unless you care about them. Mm-hmm. To some degree. And and you're concerned about their well-being. Of course, he's going to say it in a very penny way, which is, what's wrong with you? Yep. <laughs> um, but he actually wants to know. And he knows Quentin so well. <laughs> he's just like, stop singing Imagine Dragons to try to get me off the trail of what's going on, you know? <laughs> like, he knows exactly what Quentin is doing. And I think something that we do bring up periodically throughout our podcast, even though we've never actually done a podcast episode on Ender's Game, mm-hmm. but we periodically bring up the if you fully know someone, fully understand someone, you love them. Uh, because you understand every part of them. Yeah. And And just sharing that, sharing in their humanity is something that I think that requires love and enables love. Or or personhood, maybe. Yeah, yeah. When it's, you know, dealing with different species and aliens and, you know, all all of the things. Good point. (laughs) And so I think that, yeah, Penny does love Quentin in a way because he probably knows Quentin better than he knows any other magician at least 
because Quentin, as Penny said, leaks. <laughs> like his mind, his emotions just leak out and he can feel what he's feeling. He can know what he's thinking. So he's worried. It's like something is wronger than usual. But he's trying to treat him like an adult. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to step away from dealing with things that he doesn't have control over, which is Quentin being willing to actually say what's wrong and get help for what's wrong. And so he's like, you know, he's a grown man. He'll have to deal with it. Like he's trying to put a healthy boundary of, okay, I this isn't my problem to solve. I'm going to try to step away from this and just help with Katie with what she actually wants help with. Mm -hmm. And then another part of his perspective I was thinking of in this episode is obviously his decision to sign with the library. Yeah. I guess that's a a a million year decision. (laughs) And I think it's really interesting that he says at least the library is upfront with what things cost. Mm. And I think that that is a big reason why he chooses to because he hates people trying to take advantage of him Mm -hmm. which is why he reacted so strongly to the river watcher Mm -hmm. saying that he owed all of this gold only after he used the torrent also i think why he would choose the library over mayakovsky because mayakovsky is not saying what this is going to cost him to teach him how to do magic again, if that's even really a real thing. But he believes that Zelda is telling him the truth, that they can teach him how to use magic again. Zelda's never lied to him about anything, and it seems very outside of her personality from the little we've seen of her. And there is a contract that he can actually read and agree to. Mm -hmm. And so he respects the library for at least not being duplicitous in their interactions with him, even if the prophecy annoys him. Yeah. So often you'd see something that's like, oh, sign this contract, you know, to be our servant, to work for us. And the expectation is that it would end when you die. Mm -hmm. But, oh, no, in the fine print, it actually goes on forever. Mm -hmm. And even after you die, like here, they're up front. There isn't fine print. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, And... I wonder if part of this comes from his experience. I mean, I'm sure growing up, even when he said, you know, I've met people like the River Watcher who are just trying to scam you. And it seems like he has personal experience with this. And considering that he had so little growing up, being shuffled around in the foster care system and then doing who knows what until he was able to be admitted to break bills. Mm -hmm. But I think also... Importantly, I'm sure that Martin Chatwin has something to do with it, too. Mm. That he feels his entire childhood, his entire consistent friend, only person there for him was all just one long con. Yeah. To use him when he wanted to and to lure him to him eventually so that he could kill him. Yeah, that would affect you. And I think that that realization is still affecting him and his Mm -hmm. decisions now. Yeah, that's a really good point. 
Yeah, and I think the other piece of it, too, is that he says to Katie, when she's like, what, you signed this million-year contract, what were you thinking? And he says, the way I look at it is, I should already be dead by now, so all of this is bonus. <laughs> when we think about just what we know of his life thus far <laughs> in a season and a half, he has the experiences of dangerous traveling, of even tattooing himself so that he couldn't because of how dangerous it was and because of the fear that he had. And then he had those seven probability deaths that he had to experience. Yeah. And he's been constantly in and out of the hospital on the verge of death since we meet him. I think that those things are very much factor into his choice that even Zelda told him in a previous episode, if you can survive long enough, master travelers wrote our best books. Like you can do so much yeah. if you can survive long enough. And, and it's always that, right? If you can. And the only mentor he was given that was a traveler was like, don't do this tattoo yourself because this is the fastest way to kill yourself, you know? And so, so... And then he killed himself. Yeah, he killed himself. And so it's like, Penny's life has been so dangerous. Just not even because of his choices as much as other people's choices and then his own innate ability. And so I'm wondering if there's still a part of him that's worried about dying. Mm -hmm. And... Maybe knowing that he'll at least be alive in some sort of way after his death for a million years, because it's going to be about a million years, <laughs> minus however many short human lifespan. And I don't know, maybe that's comforting in a way that even if he dies, he has something else that he can rely on. I, I don't know if that's there, but... Maybe that doesn't seem as scary. Like, the million-year contract doesn't seem as scary as, like, some great big unknown that he's going to meet any time now. Yeah. Or even, you know, the unknowns of his life. You mm -hmm. know? Like, yeah. that that When you look at everything from a million-year perspective, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whatever else happens in his life is going to be pretty minor. And so, yeah, I can imagine that being a weight off his shoulders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I could die any minute. All I really want, I, I want to be with Katie. Yeah. And so this helps her, and I love her, and she's one of the only people I love, so... Okay, deal. Just deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love you to love us, Penny. <laughs> we'll deal with it. I would deal with that all day. <laughs> And then the end of the episode, what happens to him? He's almost killed by a Niffin that somehow can hurt him in Quentin's mind, which is not something he's used to. And so, yes, I was I was just thinking about all of these things coming together for Penny to, to make this really big decision. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. But what about you? Whose POV did you want to talk about? I want to talk about Margot. Yeah, let's do it. She's struggling. She is episode. struggling. And, you know, obviously, I can just imagine how infuriating it is to have that conversation with the dryad who mm -hmm. tells her that it's an insult that she came and not 
the High King. Right. That's so offensive. Right. And when she's already juggling so many things to have that thrown in her face, I think is is just really, really awful. And, you know, we see her reflect on this at the end of the episode when she's talking to Elliot before he's woken up. And, and she says, they don't want me. They want the High King. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just such a great line because it illustrates the struggle that she's going through. Mm-hmm. They don't want me. But she's not taking it the way Quentin would take it. It's not they don't want me. They want you. It's they don't want me. They want the High King. Mm. Margot recognizes that it is systemic hierarchies at play that's mm-hmm. causing this, including misogyny, but also just including the fact that she doesn't have Elliot's position. And sure, not everyone is the biggest fan of Margot or is going to love everything that she does, <laughs> but that's not what's the problem here. She still thinks that she can be an effective and a great ruler. Yeah, I mean, she was trying to do something diplomatic Unlike what she did before, which was declare war. Exactly. <laughs> she's she's trying to clean up that mess. And so here, this is not her being self-defeatist. I think this is her recognizing the monumental barriers in her way and still showing her determination, but also saying, hey, Elliot, I need your help to mm-hmm. get over these barriers. Because before he wakes up, she tells Fen that she will deliver on everything that Elliot has promised. That she will take care of their child, that she'll help the kingdom. You know, she is saying that even if Elliot never wakes up, I will take on those responsibilities, beyond the responsibilities I have, despite the fact that there are these barriers in my way. Despite Mm -hmm. the fact that society tells me that these are not for me that I cannot do these things, she is still going to push through and do them anyway. And it's not just her enemies that are being disrespectful to her. Even before Tick Pickwick was like, it's fine for the High Queen to state her opinion, but the decision lies with the High King. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it's even people that she's trying to fight for that also have this view of her but the commitment that she has she could just run back to earth Mm -hmm. she could if she wanted to but she doesn't and yeah she commits to delivering on the things that someone who had no other choice that was going to be here for the rest of their life as king committed to and and she's willing to take those on yeah and so yeah I, i just really admire Margot's pragmatism Mm. and her determination to take on this role and do everything she can with it, even though she thinks that, you know, she even says at one point that she's faking it. And they're all faking it to some extent. Like, none of them know how to be a ruler. (laughs) But I think she's even being too hard on herself there, that saying that she's faking it, because she's still doing the work, you know? We saw how she told Julia, I respect you in a way, but I'm also going to lock you up because you're a loose cannon. (laughs) Like, she's growing. She's gaining some diplomacy there, some strategy, you know? (laughs) And, yeah, she's just trying her hardest. So I think this was a great episode for her, even though she's not super plot central, Mm -hmm. um, to see her 
as the lone ruler when Elliot's asleep and how that's different than it was when he was the only one in Fillory. And not only the difference that she's not High King, but also the difference in their personalities. Yeah, I just, uh, I, I really, really respect Margot the more that I see of her as a ruler. And while I disagree with much of her moral decisions, mm -hmm. I think that she has the makings of a really strong leader in a way that I don't think any other character does. Mm. Yeah, I think this is a really important episode for her uh, as we continue on. Yeah, but I'm also glad Elliot's back. I mean, <laughs> a whole episode with almost no Elliot. Yeah, right, so besides, sad. Besides, like, one line. <laughs> but it's already a long episode. There's already so much to happen. I was like, it's good Elliot's not in here because that would just add way more magic moments than we have time to talk about. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of long episodes, why don't we head into our last segment where we revisit the title of this episode, Word as Bond. What do you think about that as a title? Yeah, I wasn't totally sure as we started the episode, but now I actually really like it. Because we obviously have this spell mm -hmm. between Alice and Quentin, which is, you know, the official name of the spell. But as we've been talking about, there's many bonds in this episode mm -hmm. that are really affecting the character's actions. And I think that... It may not be a word as bond spell, or maybe it is the one that Penny does with the library. Mm. Uh, but he signs on to being bound to this institution and this work. And Margot, like you were just talking about, she doesn't sign anything to become High Queen, but she takes her word at accepting it as binding her to this place, to this role that she's going to do even when they don't want her, even when she's not equipped for it, even when it is so much harder than just leaving and finishing her education, but she stays bound to it. Yeah, she takes on someone else's promises mm -hmm. and promises them in turn, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there's with Julia that it is her relationship bonds that are keeping her from doing more destruction thus far. Like, she still has bonds with Katie, with Quentin, mm -hmm. even with Margot in a very angry way. <laughs> <laughs> but it is these relationships making her, even though with the tree genocide that she does, seeming more and more like Martin, but she still isn't quite like Martin because of these bonds that she is continuing to value in some way. Yeah. So yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah, you've convinced me. <laughs> I, I also was all like, eh, okay, whatever. But a deeper dive into those themes and into the defining character moments that we get in this episode, I think does show that so many characters take such important turns in this episode that uh, the, the title makes sense. Yeah, totally. All right, well, that will wrap up this week's discussion. So what's happening next time on The Magicians? So we'll be watching Season 2, Episode 9, Lesser Evils, where we learn about some magical STIs. Oh, dear. Of course we do. <laughs> <laughs> that we don't get from the cock bears. <laughs> 
All right, well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. We hope that you'll join us on Patreon so you can help support the show. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.